almost told our setup team just to put out half the chairs today because we, we just didn't really know what to expect. So it's just wonderful to see you all here this morning. And I believe we've got some people online as well. So great. And, and I think we're just going to make, do this every week from now on, put the service online as well. So if you're sick and you have to stay at home, it will be on our, our YouTube channel. So please make use of that. And today we, we're continuing our series on the book of Revelation, looking at chapter 12. So please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to be focusing in particular on the first six verses. We're not going to do walk through the whole chapter, but, but just the six first verses. So it's been quite a week. Dark mofo, cancelled. <laughs> Grand Prix cancelled, AFL matches locked down apparently, Salamanca markets closed indefinitely, uh, all kindergarten schools, colleges, universities in France shut and I believe I spoke to my sister yesterday in Baltimore, she said the, the entire country is just shut down basically, they're just staying home, there's Nothing open. Millions of people in voluntary or forced quarantine, stock markets collapsing, people's livelihoods under threat, researchers racing to find a vaccine, people fighting physically over toilet paper and <laughs> tins of baked beans. I suppose if you're going to eat all those baked beans, you're going to need all that, that toilet paper. <laughs> And by next Sunday, gatherings like this could be banned. So it's changing day by day, isn't it? So by next Sunday, our government could say, no more gatherings, over 100 people. And so we're going to have to rely on, on the YouTube link. And we'll certainly keep you up to date with that. Ten minutes ago, the most dire issue in our community was whether two people of the same sex should be allowed to marry. Five minutes ago, we were in a climate emergency, and now the coronavirus, of course, has completely taken over everyone's minds and the front pages of the newspaper, and New South Wales hospital staff have been told to prepare for up to 8,000 deaths, so that's, that's New South Wales. Did you ever think we would see such times? Did you ever think we would live in a such an extraordinary time as the time we're in. And we've been working through the book of Revelation, and so if you've been following along and listening to what God's Word says, then this really should be no surprise, this, this kind of thing. It's the pale horse of Revelation 6 that we're seeing. Revelation 6 verse 8, I looked and there before me was a pale horse, its rider was named Death, and Hades followed close behind. They were given power over fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. And this is the fourth trumpet blast of Revelation chapter 8 that we looked at a few weeks ago. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, a third of the waters turned bitter. And many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And so these kinds of natural disasters 
are clearly foretold in the book of Revelation and we are seeing uh, God's hand upon the earth. It's a foretaste of final judgment and God in his mercy is shaking and, and waking up our world to our mortality and to our need for his grace and forgiveness. Besides this attack upon the world, I am seeing right now a particularly ferocious attack upon the church, upon our church, in fact. And there are uh, many uh, very hard and terrible things happening to people in our church that you, you would probably not be aware of. And, but you need to know that, that these things are happening. And in my uh, 21 years of full-time ministry, I've never quite seen so many hard things happen to a church all at once. And so we've seen what Scripture says about afflictions falling upon the world, and I've alluded back to Revelation 6 and Revelation 8. The question this morning is, what about afflictions upon the church in particular? What does the book of Revelation say about afflictions upon the church? Remember that the book of Revelation is God pulling aside the curtains so that we can see what is going on behind the scenes, so that we can look beyond what our eyes can see and our ears can hear to see what is happening in the spiritual realm. The book of Revelation explains what is going on in the spiritual realm, which has such an impact on our day-to-day -day lives. And so in Revelation 12, we see the curtain pulled aside and we are seeing affliction upon the church and the source of that affliction and also the outcome of that affliction. And as I said, we are going to focus on the first six verses. I've done a brief exposition of the whole passage, which you can read for yourself. It's in the corner post or it, it, it's online if you're watching online on the pastor's blog. So you've got an exposition of the whole chapter, but this morning just the first six verses in particular. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning hungry to hear your voice. We want to know what's going on in the world around us. And we pray that you will open our eyes this morning to see the truth. And we pray that you will humble us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will um, soften our hearts to receive what your word is saying. And that your spirit, by the power of your word, will change our hearts and change our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a great symbol, if you like, and, and Revelation is a book of symbols. It's, it, it symbolizes what is happening in the unseen spiritual world by these pictures and symbols drawn almost in every case from the Old Testament. And what is this, this great sign? What is this great symbol? A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Who is this woman? What is this woman symbolizing? This woman is symbolizing the church. 
This is the church of God. And if you turn with me to Isaiah 54, you'll see in verse 5, the church of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, is described, symbolized as the bride of God. For your maker, Israel, is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And in the book of Revelation itself, we see this spelled out in chapter 21, verse 2, where John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is the, the city of God, the city of God's people, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so in Revelation 12, we see this woman who symbolizes the church. And we see that this, this woman here is very beautifully arrayed. She's arrayed like a, a beautiful bride. The sun, the moon, and the stars are, are kind of draped on her and around her like jewels. Look there. She's, she's clothed with the sun, wrapped around with the sun like a, a beautiful wedding garment. And she wears a crown of 12 stars on her head and under her feet is the moon. So the sun, the moon and the stars are draped on the bride of God. It's a beautiful picture. And we might think, we might look at the church and think that the church is not much to look at across the world, that the church is very plain, that the church is very uh, ugly. But what we see here is the church in God's eyes. When God looks at his church, he sees a beautiful bride. And I don't know about you, but, but when you go to a wedding, you see the bride come down the aisle. What is it that makes her most beautiful? Is it uh, the, the, the lovely white dress or her hair done just so? No, I think what makes the bride most beautiful is how the husband sees her. And, 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 and you turn and you look at the husband's, the, the groom's face, and you see him filled with such love for his bride. And that is what, what gives such beauty. I mean, the bride could be coming down on crutches, right? And her hair could have been blown everywhere by the wind and she could be missing a couple of teeth and she could be sunburnt. But you look at, the, look at the husband and you look at his face and the bride becomes very beautiful because of how the husband sees her. And this is how God sees his bride, the church, beautifully arrayed with the sun and the moon and the stars. And she was pregnant, it says here. This woman was pregnant the wife was pregnant and cried out in pain and was about to give birth. In fact, in the original language, it's, it's more emphatic than that. She cried out in pain and in the agony of giving birth. Now, what, what is going on here? What is this talking about? Well, as we continue through Revelation chapter 12, we see that it is the church... The, the wife of God, as it were. 
from which God brings his son. His son he brings to the world through his church. And we see that very clearly in uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 5, which talks about Israel and the patriarchs as being the human ancestors of Christ. So it, it's the church of the Old Testament, Israel, that is the physical means by which God brings his son into the world. And we see that Jesus himself tells the church that we should be bringing him to the world spiritually and in the good news of his life and death and resurrection for sinners. And so the church, which might look very plain and ordinary to us, is beautiful in God's eyes and it's the church that God uses to bring his son into the world. And just as uh, giving birth is, so I'm told, both painful and wonderful, so I'm told, and so I witnessed as well with the birth of my four children, painful and wonderful. So the bringing of Christ into the world through God's wife, the church, is a painful and wonderful thing. Now, this lovely scene is now turned into a scene of horror with just a few words. So we have this beautiful scene of this beautiful wife, the church, bringing the Son of God into the world. And now it is transformed with a few words into a scene of horror. Because another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. And the dragon, of course, is a symbol of the devil. The devil appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden as a serpent, as a reptile, and he is constantly figured through the Bible as a snake or a dragon or a sea monster or something like that. And so we, here we see the devil symbolized as an enormous, literally fiery dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And so the, the seven heads with the seven crowns shows that the devil has some kind of rule and authority on this earth. And Jesus talked about the devil as being the, the prince of this earth. God has granted him some kind of limited rule on this earth. And what do the ten horns symbolize? Well, the horn symbolizes power and strength. The horns of the, of the bull, uh, it, it, it encapsulates the strength of the bull. And so this, these ten horns on the devil show that he is not only, not only has been given a certain amount of rule, but he is very powerful indeed. And his power is demonstrated by the fact that he sweeps his tail and a third of the stars are swept out of the sky and flung to the earth. And so we are meant to see here that the devil is not to be laughed at, that he is ferocious and very powerful 
indeed. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. It's now a, a horrible scene, isn't it? The, the, the beautiful scene of the, the beautiful wife uh, giving birth is now turned into a scene of horror as we see this fiery red dragon waiting to devour the offspring, the child of the woman. And as we read the Bible, we see that this is exactly what the devil has tried to do again and again and again. God promised that his son would come and time and again the devil tried to prevent that from happening by destroying uh, the mother or by being ready to devour the son. And we saw it, we see it right in the beginning of the Bible. Remember that God said that the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the serpent? That's in Genesis chapter 3. And so what we see is that the the great saviour would come through the woman, through her seed, through her offspring. And straight away you see Cain murdering Abel, his brother, who was the brother through which the, the offspring would have come. He murders him. And God provides another son, Seth, so that the the, the seed of the woman could come through him. We see the devil trying to destroy the family, the nation in its beginnings, through which the son would come through famine at the end of the book of Genesis. We see the devil trying to destroy this nation through Pharaoh, who tries to obliterate the nation through genocide, through having commanding that the boys of the nation be thrown into the Nile. We see the devil trying to destroy the nation through Baal worship. We see the devil trying to destroy the nation through the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the the great Babylonian emperor. We see the devil trying to destroy the nation through Haman in the book of Esther and the genocide that he planned for God's people. What you see in Revelation 12, verse 4, is in one sentence what you see right through the Bible. The devil wanting to destroy the offspring of God's bride, the church. The devil determined to destroy God's son and saviour. But then we see that the woman gives birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Who's that? That's Jesus himself. We know Psalm 2. We know that that the Messiah will come and rule with an iron scepter. That's Jesus comes into the world through God's bride, through the church, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And so although the devil is there, ready, waiting to destroy the Son of God, he's snatched up and taken to a place of safety. Now that, in one sentence, describes the incarnation of Christ, doesn't it? In one sentence, you see 
the birth of Jesus. And what happened at the birth of Jesus? Herod sent his soldiers to slay him. And all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem were, were put to death. But God gave that, that dream to Joseph, who took the baby Jesus to safety in Egypt. But the devil didn't stop there, did he? He tried through Herod, then he tried through his temptations to, to break Jesus. He tried to drown Jesus on the Lake of Galilee with that, that mighty storm. And then... He thought he had won when Jesus was nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers under Pontius Pilate and the devil thought he had won until on the third day Jesus breaks out of the tomb, is raised to life, is seen by hundreds of witnesses and ascends in a cloud to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God. That whole story of Jesus' life is encapsulated there in just a few words. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So can you see, it's almost the entire Bible story is told in these few verses here. God's plan to bring his son and saviour into the world through his church, Israel in the Old Testament and the proclamation of Christ in the New Testament through his apostles and the devil wanting to destroy Christ, destroy the Saviour, but his plans absolutely frustrated by God as he is snatched up to God, raised up to be seated at the right hand of God in heaven. However, that's not the end of the devil. When Christ ascended, the Bible teaches emphatically that the, the, the devil was defeated, but at the same time, the devil continues his terrible work. And what does the devil do now? He's, he can't destroy the Son of God. Jesus is, is seated at God's right hand. He's, he's out of reach of the devil. So what does the devil try to do? He tries to destroy the mother. He tries to destroy the people of God, saved by the Son. And that's what we see there in verse 6 and played out over and again in chapter 12. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And the 1,260 days, that's the, a very common number in the book of Revelation. It's the 42 months. It's the, the time, times and half a time. It's the three and a half years. It's the time that we live in now. It's the last days before Jesus returns in final judgment. It's a time of persecution upon the church. And what we read here is that although the devil will do his utmost to hurt and to harm God's bride, the church, that the church has been taken into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 
this period that we live in, the last days. Well, I want us to, with the time remaining, I want us to focus on some very, very important facts and truths here. First of all, I want to come back to that point that the church, in the eyes of God, is something very beautiful. It's very beautiful. And again, we might look at the church and we might see the church in our city. It seems to be very few in number. It seems to have very little power and and influence. And we see infighting in the church and we see the church uh, acting in very disappointing ways. Yet, in God's eyes, the church is beautiful. It has been redeemed by his son, purchased with the blood of his son. The church is very much a work in progress. What we see now is not what the church is going to be in, in, in the future. It's still a work in progress. We still see all the, the rough edges and all the things that God is working on. But let's learn to see the church as beautiful and precious in God's sight and therefore beautiful and precious in our own eyes. And how wonderful it would be if we could see our own church that way. And we look at, we look at each other and we see so many works in progress, don't we? So many people, including your leaders, leaders and including your pastor, who are far, far from where God intends them to be. And yet, a body of people purchased with the blood of Christ and precious in the eyes of God. Let's learn to, to count as very precious our brothers and sisters and this local church body in which he has put us. Secondly, let's not at all be surprised that the devil brings ferocious and powerful afflictions upon upon the church. And that's happening right now in our own church. And he afflicts us by worldliness and he afflicts us by the church in general. He afflicts by false teachers and false teaching. And we need to be careful here that very often false teaching doesn't come just through someone saying overt heresies, saying that, uh, that Jesus isn't really the eternal Son of God, or that God isn't really one God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Rarely does false teaching come in those kind of uh, crass heresies. More often it comes through the heresy of omission, of not saying all that God's word says. You can go to certain places where the Bible is revered in word and you can hear a message week after week after week 
And you might say, well, I haven't heard the pastor say anything wrong. But the question I often have is, yes, but have they said all that God's word is saying? Have they talked about sin? Have they talked about repentance? Have they talked about persecution? Have they talked about the absolute uh, depravity of sinful humanity and how we can only be saved by the blood of Christ? Have the hard truths been put out? And, and so we need to be aware of that, that false teaching can come through omission. And the devil afflicts the church through terrible harms and, and disappointments. But his number one tool of affliction. What's his number one tool? You see it there in verse 10. The second half of verse 10. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. The devil's number one tool to strike and afflict the church is accusation. And the word Satan means accuser. And so Satan comes to, to God's church, to God's people. And he says, how can you possibly consider yourself the bride of God? Look at you. Look at your weakness. Look at your sin. Look at your ongoing rebellion. Look at the way you keep forsaking God and turning to worldly things. Look at your sin. How can you say you're going to heaven? You deserve hell. You deserve judgment. That's the number one tool by which the devil afflicts the church. It's through accusation. Now, notice from our passage that God cares for the church not by taking us out of the desert of affliction, but he takes care of us in the desert of affliction. Did, did, did you see that in, in Revelation chapter 12 there? That God takes care of his church, not by removing us from affliction, but by sustaining us through affliction. That's what he did with Israel, didn't he? He, he rescued them from Pharaoh and from the false gods of Egypt, but then he took them into a desert place where they had to rely on him hour by hour for direction. And God did direct them with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and that daily provision of food and water from the rock and God defending his people from their enemies. God doesn't remove us from affliction, but he takes care of us in affliction. And so if we look around and we see our church, and not just our church, but, but so many churches afflicted at the moment, terrible suffering going on, well, we shouldn't be surprised by that. But we should also know that God takes care of us in affliction. And it's in the furnace of affliction that he grows us. It's in affliction that he begins to tear down our selfishness and our self-centeredness. It's in affliction that he tears down our lovelessness. 
It's in affliction that he grows our dependence on his son, Jesus Christ. It's in affliction that he creates opportunities for us to love and care for one another as he loves and cares for us. Affliction is, let me say, is not a tool in the toolbox that God uses for our sanctification. It is the tool. It's the tool that he uses. He fills us with his Holy Spirit and he takes us through the desert of affliction and he grows and strengthens and changes us, conforms us into the likeness of his son in the furnace of affliction. And how do we, how do we respond to affliction? How do we respond to the, 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 these troubles? And how do we respond to the devil's attacks? Well, when the devil attacks us with worldliness, what do we say? What could be more precious than God's Son, Jesus Christ? What, what does the world have to offer in comparison with his Son? It's his Son, Jesus and focusing on his son and looking to his son that tears down the devil's attack of worldliness. And what happens when those terrible harms and disappointments come crashing down on our shoulders? And you know the disappointments that you're feeling this morning. And you know the afflictions that you are feeling this morning. Well, when those things come, we turn to Jesus Christ and to his healing and to his presence and his day-to-day strength, he is the one that upholds us through those daily afflictions. And what do we do when the devil afflicts us with his number one tool of affliction? And what is it? It's the accusation. That's, that's, that's his number one weapon is accusation. And he accuses us of sin and he says, how can you possibly count yourselves as the children of God and the bride of Christ? Look at your sin. Well, look at verse 11 there. They, that is the church, triumphed over the great dragon, the fiery dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so when the devil accuses us of sin, we say, we don't deny it. We say, yes, we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We do deserve nothing but the judgment of God. Yet we have been washed with the blood of Christ. That Jesus Christ bled upon the cross and his blood has washed away our sin. That's how we deal with the the devil's accusations. We plead the blood of Jesus. We look to the blood of Jesus. We say, it's the blood of Jesus that has dealt with my sin and taken away my sin. One final word. In this time where our, our society is feeling very afflicted, and it is. And in this time where there are 
super-added afflictions in our own body. This is the time, above all other times, where we need to love with the love of Christ. Let's bring the love and mercy of Jesus to our hurting world. We have a world out there that doesn't know where it's going. We have a city of people who don't know where they're going when they die. And death is a fearsome thing. It's something that they either have to shut their eyes to or distract themselves from or if they do dare look at it, they can only look at it with a sense of hopelessness and horror. We live in a society that has no certain hope for the future. People are hurting. People are frightened. Brothers and sisters, we have a tremendous message. We have the gospel. We can tell people that God loves this broken, sinful, fallen, rebellious world. And that he gave his son. And that with his son, we have eternal life. We can know where we're going when we die. We can have certainty for the future. And that, that brings a, a great joy and a peace in the afflictions of this life. Let's model that joy. Let's model that peace to those. Who are you rubbing shoulders with this week? Who are you seeing this week? Perhaps people in the workplace. Perhaps people at school. If the workplaces, if your workplace and school hasn't been closed down by Tuesday. But you will be rubbing shoulders with people in this world. Let's bring the, the, the joy of Christ that we have and that, that peace, that confidence that we have with him. Let's demonstrate that. Let's show that we have that to a world that is frightened. And above all, let's love one another. And that's hard. And many feel very tired and harassed and exhausted by their own cares. And there seems to be very little in the tank left for others. But this is where, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in, right? This is where we find a given a strength that we don't have within, our, within ourselves. Just when we think there's nothing left within us to love those around us who are hurting, the Spirit comes and he gives us that strength. He gives us that, that energy. He fills our hearts with love and concern. Who do you need to talk to this week? Who do you need to comfort? Who, who do you need to visit? Who needs a meal right now? Who needs an encouraging text message? Who likes getting encouraging text messages? I do. Might seem like a little thing to send a, a text message, but it can be a great thing to receive one. A big thing can really lift you up and carry you through. Who are you going to call this week? Who needs practical help? Who needs encouragement and the loving presence of Christ brought to them? This is a time, brothers and sisters, where we have to band together and love one another. And when we do that, the world will see, won't it? It will see the love of Christ as we love one another. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us that this affliction is, is nothing strange, it's nothing to be surprised about. And Heavenly Father, thank you that you sustain us in affliction. You looked after your people in the desert and you're looking after us. Heavenly Father, when the devil's accusations come, we pray that we will plead the blood of Christ. Help us, Lord God, to love a frightened community and help us to love one another, not, with, not just with words, but deeply and from the heart. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for our last song.